if you like big cinematic openings like that, you're going to love our guest today. I am joined by the one and only Mr. Nicholas Buck. Nicholas is a conductor, a composer and an arranger. If you are here in Australia, you might recognise his voice. He is the conductor if you go and see the Star Wars movies with the orchestra in theatres around Australia. You may have even seen him internationally. Nicholas is normally based out in New York, but with the global pandemic, he is back in Melbourne in his home country. And he is working from there, which was great because I was able to get a chance to talk to Nicholas. As you'll hear in this interview, I have seen Nicholas perform twice as a conductor and uh, he puts on a great show. In this episode, we talk everything classical music, an area I have no idea about, as you'll see as we go along. We figure out that it's not a wand, it's a baton, or a baton, I'm not really sure. We talk about the fact that I'll never be musical, because I'm probably too old now. And we also discuss uh, travel, jet lag, and fitness, and have a bit of an interactive conversation around that. And we also talk about the change in music over the last few years and the impact on cinema with um, movies such as uh, Dark, The Dark Knight and the soundtrack by Hans Zimmer. Anyway, lots in here. As you can tell, this is not my area, but it's a very interesting crossover. And um, I was quite surprised, actually, because I think conductors and musicians probably need to do a lot of improvement in the area of uh, performance um, in terms of physical health and performance, which we talk about in here. So maybe a research study in the future. Who knows? Anyway, I hope you enjoy uh, Nicholas book in this conversation. It was great having him on. I really appreciate him taking the time out to talk to me. Um, if you see Nicholas um, advertised anywhere with any of these kind of Star Wars movies or Harry Potter movies with the orchestra, thoroughly recommend it. It's brilliant. It's an experience as we talk about here. Anyway, on with the episode. Welcome back to Melia's Performance Podcast. Today I am joined by the composer, composer, conductor, arranger, Mr. Nicholas Buck. Nicholas, how are you doing? I'm fantastic, Ian. It's a pleasure to be here and chat all things music and performance and uh, I guess specifically the the crazy world of a travelling musician, which hasn't been so crazy in the last 12 months, but I can certainly um, impart my knowledge and wisdom about um, such travels, which hopefully will happen in the near future again. <laughs> well, yes, it is a bit of a crazy time and... Um... I'm actually quite excited about this podcast because uh, I actually got a little bit nervous before we we did this podcast today. So for those you do not know, um, Nicholas Buck is a composer, conductor, arranger, as I said in the intro. Uh, the first time I saw Nicholas was at the Perth Convention Center in the main theater. I think it's called a Riverside Theater. Hundreds That's of people, hundreds of people in there. My wife is a massive Harry Potter fan, and we used to live actually just across the road from the convention center in the city. And so we went across to watch, um, I think, I can't remember which Harry Potter movie it was. We've been to a few that you've done. And basically, for anybody that's not, they put, up, put the movie up, the Harry Potter movie up onto the big screen. And then there's a massive orchestra that sits there and, and uh, plays the music or the score from, uh, from the movie. And Nicholas was the conductor. And what really got me was, I, not, I don't have a classical background. I'm a bit kind of afraid of classical music. 
and because uh, <laughs> I know nothing about her. And so I was like, how good is this conductor? He engages with the audience. He got gets people involved. You were encouraging people to boo and cheer. But you were also telling people when to be quiet when there was these kind of pointed moments <laughs> in the movie and when, you know, a person was playing a certain instrument. And I was like, that's a really fun experience. Like, I really wish I got introduced to classical music or we'll say proper music, if you want to call it that, um, or what I call it, from someone like from someone like Nicholas. So, so Nick, what, what kind of got you into, uh, I suppose, and we'll come full circle around to that, but how, how did you get interested in, in that sort of style of music as opposed to not you know, joining a rock band and being famous and like Queen or something else? <laughs> well, look, I you know studied classical music as a young boy. Um, according to my mother, apparently I wanted to be a conductor when I was four. Really? Uh, I have no recollection of any of this. And I since since that age, I've never had any bones about actually being a conductor. Um, I played violin and piano growing up, both classical and then on piano, sort of going into the jazz and pop world a bit, um, more just because I loved pop music, you know, and specifically film music, as well as classical stuff as a boy. And so going through university, I studied composition and, again, had no interest really in, in conducting uh, or doing that as a career. Um, I wanted to be a film scorer, like writing music for films, uh, which like is a still Han- a passion of mine like and Hans still Zimmerman. something I, yeah, Hans yeah, Zimmer yeah. or John Williams or Jerry Goldsmith, Alan Silvestri. I mean, there's so many yeah, yeah. wonderful film composers. And the art form of film music has had a real um, renaissance moment in the last five or ten years, I would say. Um, and a big part of that is... I mean, not only the the wonderful world of internet and social media and our worlds getting smaller and shrinking as we are networking and connecting with each other, but actually because of what you discussed in your opening in that the symphony orchestras around the world are starting to connect with new audiences by rather than just playing, you know, old dead white guys, as they say, <laughs> you know, music of Brahms and Beethoven and Mozart and Stravinsky and Tchaikovsky, um, of actually playing music by living composers and specifically uh, film composers yeah. and this great medium where we can now get the rights to a film in order to project it on a big screen and get a cut of the film, which has the score removed, leaving just the dialogue and sound mm. effects so that we can play the music live. Um, and that's that's... Uh, you know, a very 21st century experience. Uh, it's kind of like opera, uh, you know, from 100 years ago, just yeah, reinterpreted yeah, yeah. for the modern day age. And it's been a real hit with audiences. Um, that's so much so that it's it's quite invigorated the symphony orchestras because I think you could, it's safe to say that in this day and age, our attention is torn between Netflix and Twitter and so many other forms of media and digital consumption. But I think going out to see a live concert, uh, one, is a hard task. And two, for an age-old, centuries-old institution like a classical symphony orchestra, it's an even harder task to get new listeners, get new viewers, get new eyeballs and foot, you know, foot traffic into the concert halls. And this way of presenting film music uh, and you know, together with a cinematic experience of seeing a film has really transformed that particular industry and it's super popular all over the world, Ian. Um, I've done this stuff from Finland to France to the Americas, Canada, Tokyo, you know, um, Australia, everywhere. It's a real massive hit and it's going to continue uh, post-pandemic. 
Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting. And so for me, going to that one, the first one I went that that you were the conductor at, that was like a gateway for me because I ended up going back <laughs> to another Harry Potter one that you done at the I think the following year, two years later. Then I also went to the Perth Symphony Orchestra, who did something with the Ministry of Sound up in Kings Park, which was oh, wow. basically reliving all the kind of you know uh, late nineties, early two thousands dance music. And it was yeah. all sort of people, you know, probably 38 plus years of age. And yep. so for me, that was awesome. Like my wife and I were up up at that. We had like, you know, you'd look at each other going, oh, I remember this song. And like, it kind of was, <laughs> had this, like, it was like time travel. It would bring you back to a specific time, like in 1998. You'd be like, oh yeah, I was in this place. So that was yeah. kind of cool. Then we ended up going to another one with the Perth Symphony Orchestra that was um, like, had all the, the music from The Doors. So I was a fan of The Doors growing up as well. Um, yep. even though I'm not that old. Um, but I, you know, sort of got into the doors in the early nineties with the uh, Oliver Stone music, uh, Oliver Stone movie coming out with uh, Val Kilmer. So yeah, it was kind I of like, remember that. Yeah. So it was kind of like one of these things I went to a once and it was like, Oh, I'm going to go to more of these. And it was just absolutely yeah. fabulous. It was like that kind of gateway. And I, I was trying to go to a few more, um, but I was traveling a bit for work, but yeah, it certainly, it certainly piqued my interest in the, the classical music area. And I suppose like, <laughs> I'd never been really, I've never studied music growing up, but I remember even as a youngster, that sort of, we'll say, area of that crossover always fascinated me. Like a story that I actually remember yesterday in anticipation of this interview was that in 1998, I was in South Lebanon in the Irish army. And I hate to say this, but I'm going to, I'm going to um, incriminate myself here. I bought a bootleg, <laughs> a bootleg CD for one US dollar. Of John Bar- of John Barry's score of Dances with Wolves, and I used to play it in my room. Um, oh wow! So like I was twenty at the time, nineteen twenty at the time, and so that was um, that was like probably my first classical music CD that I ever bought, uh, albeit yeah. illegal, albeit illegally. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you know that was one of those um, you know soundtracks that really. Um, was almost bigger than the film in some ways, you know, won John Barry an Academy Award. And it's really funny you mentioned that, Ian, because, I mean, John Barry has been a huge influence in my career. And I think, you know, as a boy growing up studying classical music, I discovered the Bond films, you know, at about the age of sort of 10 or so. And John Barry, as you may know, did, you know, most most of the films up until the mid '90s, he scored almost every Bond film. Not not all of them, but 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 the majority of them. And his sound was such a great mix of sort of that, um, you know, the orchestra meets the jazz band, and everything from, you know, you think of all the great songs: Goldfinger, Thunderball, Diamonds Are yeah. Forever, um, even up to later things like Duran Duran's A View to a Kill. You know, massive hit. Oh, yes, uh, the first yes, yes. Bo- first Bond song to reach number one in, in the US, yeah. um, believe it or not. And, you know, co-written with with John Barry and Duran Duran. He really was the guy that, that sort of created the spy sound in many ways. Maybe him and Henry Mancini um, through the sort of 60s and 70s and 80s. And I, I was hooked on the Bond films and discovered his music and then really kind of pivoted into the rest of the wider world of film music. Which and look, you, you say you've never been to see a symphony orchestra or ne- never really had an interest in it. Um, you know, I think a lot of people say that, yet they're probably exposed to it more than they think because every time they watch a film or a TV show, the chances are there's some highly orchestral element in the music somewhere there. Um, you know, even from kids, like they're, they're 
you know, they may not be going to symphony orchestra concerts, but they're consuming all the Pixar films, all the yeah, DreamWorks yeah. animations, you know, which are chock full of block of, um, of, of orchestral music and wonderful contemporary orchestral music. Um, that is, yeah, a, a sort of a gateway without them kind of knowing it. So to come full circle and bringing them into a, a live movie concert experience with an orchestra, I think is a very kind of thrilling but also familiar um, setting for them because it, it just basically highlights a particular part of the art form which they're all very well aware of and it's a real thrill to see it created live, you know, to hear that that glorious Harry Potter theme played by the Celeste, you know, yeah, or the yeah. French horns and you can look down in the in the the orchestra and see the musicians there playing and blowing and sweating and and all that kind of stuff, you know, moving their bows and and creating yeah. a ruckus. It's it's quite a thrill to see it see it come come to life. And I, I was actually more intrigued by looking at the orchestra as a, as opposed to watching the movie. You know, I was like, you know <laughs> watching what was going on and like yeah. it's just it's it's pretty amazing all these different moving pieces. But I think there's one thing that you talk about there nick that is actually kind of similar to other disciplines like you talk about classical music being in movies or the combination with like orchestra and jazz and being like you know potentially like opera years ago this kind of crossover domain or with like Perth symphony orchestra doing stuff with the doors this is like what we do in science as well in research so if you talk about sleep science like in my area for example people are like bored shitless with that they don't want to hear about you talk about sports (laughs) you talk about sleep and performance working with a rugby team or a formula one driver or you know people go oh really so you kind of cross that domain of like you know motorsports performance sleep jet lag people go oh that's really interesting so i think when you cross over multiple domains is when you can have the biggest impact and i think that's what totally that's what these that's what these type of um these type of concerts are doing and and also as well like i grew up in a in a you know a working class family where you wouldn't go to a concert as in like classical um you wouldn't sit there but i think what <laughs> this type of activity or this type of concert does is you allow people to be people like when you it was people dressed up as voldemort these things like if you haven't been <laughs> one of these things it's an, it's a total experience like it's yeah i dress up as voldemort who scared the shit out of me my wife was gone that guy really looks like voldemort like whatever sort of suit he had on he must have spent a lot of money there was kids dressed up there you could buy all the gear my wife had a you know a gryffindor thing on there was people dressed up like like from all extremes right down to like you know someone's granddad dressed in a suit there was it was it was for everybody and it was just awesome every type of person come to this and engage in it on different levels for different reasons it was it's just absolutely it was mind-boggling. That's why I say, like, I, I watch more of the orchestra and the people as opposed to watching the movie. I, th- I thought it was fascinating yeah. in respect. And you're talking about, you know, breaking down barriers and crossing over. I mean, I think the general perception is that um, a lot of people don't know the etiquette, you know, to or what the etiquette is when they go to a classical concert. I think the perception is that everyone sort of sits there in dead silence and it's quite a stuffy atmosphere you know, and you just um, you just listen in silence, and even even applause is sort of a bit. Well, is this the right moment to clap? Yeah, yeah. You know, there's there's always a typical thing in in symphony orchestra concerts that whenever a symphony is performed, which generally in the olden days consists of four movements, you know, it's it's poor manners to clap between movements. You need to wait till the entire 
you know, symphony has been has been completed before you break into applause. And so there's always been this this fear or not quite sure what to do moment for audience members. And so, you know, for them to discover as an audience, oh wow, we can we can dress up, we can cheer, we can have yeah. fun, we can, you know, be a bit raucous. It's a real surprise moment for them and a, a real barrier breaker. You know, it's like kind of like letting their hair down. It's kind of like a bit cheeky. Ooh, yeah, we're yeah. at the symphony orchestra and we're laughing. <laughs> we're eating popcorn. We're drinking, um, um, you know, butter beer or whatever they're selling out the front, and we're wearing a silly hat. I mean, that's that's quite a um, a unique thing that you probably wouldn't expect you'd be allowed to do at a classical music venue. <laughs> so that's that's a real fantastic icebreaker for the audience. And to be honest, you know. The, the perception amongst players and even organizations who run these orchestras has changed as they've realized um, what a great new avenue this stuff is. And I still, look, I still talk to some members of the orchestra who kind of, you know, turn their nose up a bit at these inverted commas pops concerts. Um, you know, there's a particular viewpoint that says they're not serious enough that you know, it's a bit lowbrow, it's sort of catering to the masses. Um, there's definitely a bit of a snob factor amongst mm. some some playing ranks. But I will say that that is changing drastically because at the end of the day, um, if the music's great, uh, that's, that's a, a bonus for the orchestra to play fantastic music. And more to point, I mean, you're just getting, everyone likes to play to a, an enthusiastic crowd. It's something about just heard herd mentality when you're playing music and 2,000 people are cheering as you're playing, I mean, that's pretty. It's a pretty special thing and it's not something yeah. you'd, you'd typically get um, at, a, at a concert, especially if you're playing you know, an old masterwork such as Beethoven. You generally sit in complete silence. Yeah. Um, so, so for you... So it's, a, almost akin, it's almost akin to a football match in some ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Actually, you talk about people having experiences. The guys that were sitting beside me when I went to watch the Perth Symphony Orchestra and the Doors, because it was at the Majesty's Theatre here in the city centre, the two guys to the left of me were on acid. So um, <laughs> um, that was that go. was quite interesting. They were in their probably late 40s, early 50s, and they had taken acid. So I think, uh, yeah, classical music is for everybody. <laughs> um, oh, exactly. <laughs> so... Um, Nicholas, what is that like when you get up in front of, like, you know, you do these concerts in the evening, you get up in front of people, and like you said, it is like, for want of a better word, being like a rock star. Like, how how do you feel as a as a conductor? Like, do you get into this phase or this stage of, or state of flow, and it's all moving, and, you know, it's, it must be highly yeah, but- exhilarating. And like, how, how do you manage that, and then how do you kind of wind down after that as well? So, look, I I've been told by several players that, when they then they watch me conduct in these film concerts that I go into a zone or like a, a sort of a, a certain plane of of being, <laughs> yeah. if, if you will. And I think, you know, any conductor will tell you that you've got to, one, pace yourself for a performance. It's a bit like being an athlete, especially you're on stage for, you know, 60 minutes straight, um, sometimes longer, you know, waving your arms about and you know, there's a physicality of just sort of conducting, which is quite a physical sport. Uh, I, I, will, I will say that um, some people think, oh, they're just sort of standing there. How high can it be? But it's a real physical workout, especially if you are playing loud, fast action music, which is all over these Hollywood films. You know, it's not like just a walk in the park of easy, beautiful, romantic ballads. <laughs> 
Um, and so there's the physicality of it, but there's also the mental concentration. You know, conducting is one of these things where you are, there's a bit of magic involved, um, but it's also, it's a case of you are kind of in command of an army. And it's a very well, highly trained, oiled army. Um, but they are all musicians working at a high caliber. And it's almost like you're both egging each other on to get the best possible performance. So the level of concentration, leadership, uh, physicality, and emotional input that you have to put into the music to get you know, the very best result is quite a taxing thing. And I'm usually pretty knackered after these things. And if it wasn't for adrenaline, um, oh boy, I'd be I'd be lost at sea because no other thing that I do um, motivates me more than just my adrenal glands. And it's probably that thing you mentioned about sort of the rock star attitude. You come out to applause, you know, it's hard to be shy and insular when you've got 2,000 people cheering and you can tell that they're revved up and excited. <laughs> Um, so, you know, to turn around and encourage that even more, it's sort of, it's in some ways, it's helping them to egg on myself and the orchestra. Because <laughs> yeah. uh, when I see they're enthusiastic, that that in turn um, makes me excited and I think really heightens my performance. Because um, I've, look, I, you know, I've done, I've conducted, you know, for want of a better word, more serious classical pieces in, in my career as well. And you know, it's a very different kind of applause and it's a different atmosphere. It's You feel a bit more lonely up on stage, to be honest. It's like people are there sitting in silent. It's like a very quiet art gallery. You know, they're just waiting for you to create the art um, versus walking out onto a, you know, like a sports team, walking out onto a football field. That crowd enthusiasm really plays a huge impact um, so, for, so for myself and the orchestra. So, Nick, does that actually then affect how you will say get ready for one of these events? Do you do any sort of physical warm up beforehand because there is so much movement during it, or <laughs> does your like if you're doing a kind of a more classical serious thing, is it more like meditative? I want to get into the zone. I need to be mentally there. Whereas if you're going out doing a Harry Potter, or Lion King, Jurassic Park type of thing, do you you know do more stretch and wave your arms around, kind of bounce on the spot like a like a fighter? How, how does your pre, how does your pre concert you know, rev up change between event? Look, I think they both have, um, you know, both of them require immense amounts of preparation beforehand in terms of, you know, learning the music and just being confident in that respect. Um, but I generally get um, a greater level of excitement from from the film concerts. And I think it's just because of what I said, because you know that the audience is there and they're excited. Um, and I feel I feel a bit more relaxed uh, actually with, with the film audience because I know that there's many first timers there they're looking for some kind of gesture from the stage that hey it's okay to to kind of kick your shoes off and and let your hair down and 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 relax and cheer and laugh and and even you know even chatter a bit you know and giggle to each other about certain moments so I I really much look forward to that that first that you know, running out on stage, grabbing the microphone, and sort of being a bit of an MC for the evening, uh, which I don't always do for a normal kind of um, classical concert. And I think that really helps become the icebreaker, and in turn lets the audience know that it's okay to relax. And I think that that fuels my own um, excitement in turn. So Nicholas, I got to divert here because I had a few. Uh, I told some people that I was going to interview you, and they had a few weird questions for me. So here's a few weird <laughs> questions I'm going to throw at you. 
Number one, what's the stick in your hand called that you wave around? Uh, it's called a baton, not a, a baton, wand. Not a wand, yeah. yeah. I kept saying yeah. wand if I couldn't think of that baton. Secondly, yeah, baton. why do conductors make all those crazy movements with their bodies and their hands and, and make their face contort and bend backwards and forwards? And what's all that about? <laughs> what's the purpose of all that movement? It's to, it's basically, it's a physical and, uh, you know, facial reaction to um, to the music. And conducting really, in its simplest terms, is broken down to two things. There's the the fundamental role of conducting the beat. You know, if something is one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, to use the simplest example, there is a certain pattern that most conductors will do to convey that. Um, but that's just semantics. That's just, you know, literally being a, a metronome, a human metronome. The magic and the rest of it and what really separates great conductors from not so great conductors is what they can get with their physical presence. Uh, and it's kind of an amazing thing because you're the silent you're the silent musician. I make no noise apart from maybe a grunt here and there. Uh, but when my hands go through the air, they're not creating notes, they're not creating sounds. They're just really silent physical gestures. So the only thing I can do to communicate is is make, um, you know, bigger gestures, smaller gestures, contort my face. Um, it's kind of like being a, an overpaid mime artist <laughs> trying to encourage 80 people to do something. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I can't shout at them. I can't yell at them. I can't say things. It all needs to happen with my physical body. So that that explains all the crazy movements. Right. Excellent. And so what is it that makes people... And maybe you know this, maybe you don't. I'm not, I'm not looking for a scientific answer here, but what is it that makes music or makes people react to music in different ways? For example, I said about the John Barry CD. Didn't grow up with classical music. Why was I so attracted to that? I liked, I liked the movie, but the music really caught me. Or in the Batman Dark Knight series, in the Batman series recently by Christopher Nolan, like Hans, yeah. Zimmer, Hans, Hans Zimmer's music. I don't know. For some reason, I resonate with that. Like even to the point of where I go out and run 10Ks, I listen to the Dark Knight <laughs> soundtrack as opposed yeah. to listening to exercise music. And it puts me in a kind of a zone. Or if yep. you're driving in the car and you are listening to, I don't know, some <laughs> romantic song and you start crying because your girlfriend when you were 13 broke up with you over that song. What is it that makes people react to music so much? Is there is there some format, some like... What do you think it is? Look, there are there are two things. I, you know, I'll talk about timbre, which is like the quality of sounds that you are hearing, and um, I guess the next word is probably things like harmony. And throughout history, music has evolved. You know, you can hear something from the Baroque period. You know, J.S. Bach, one of the great master composers from from the Baroque era. And his music has a certain quality, and that's because it uses certain um, similar um, groups of notes connected together. Now, something like John Barry Dance with Wolves, his his use of harmony, like the the notes that he actually uses and the chords that he uses, um, are very simple, and they're very based in pop music. Um, you probably hear a similar chord progression in a in a Beatles song somewhere, but you know, and so that creates a certain comfort in us and combine that with a beautiful large string orchestra, which this gets back to my comment about timbre. It's a very soft, um, warm, embracing kind of sound um, just from those string instruments. It's very smooth. It's romantic. 
and just through our you know knowledge of 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 music and experience of other other bits of string orchestra music that combines to make us feel warm calm you know nostalgic longing um, just the way those fibers are sort of resonating inside of us because of those sounds. And conversely, it takes me like um, Hans Zimmer's music and especially stuff for The Dark Knight. He has this great knack of really channeling adrenaline in music. Yes, yes. And it's, and it's because <laughs> it's, it's, um, there's a very strong physicality to it. It's in its um, film music, especially in the last 20 years, has really relied on this technique called ostinato, which is basically like a repetitive rhythmic pattern. So, I mean, think of anything like dance music, you know, techno beat is like, it's just this repetitive thump that it's almost like a, a, a virtual heartbeat and it basically gets your adrenaline going because of its repetitive nature. Hans Zimmer has managed to kind of channel that with an orchestra. So all his music for The Dark Knight has a very propulsive, repetitive you know almost like a pulsing heartbeat and it just gets your blood flowing it's sort of like the musical equivalent of of heartbeats and and blood moving through the body quickly um and i think that really just inspires something inside of people to to move and whether you're driving whether you're working out um it's that physical reaction to the physical movement of the music that really connects those dots yeah, I, I was going to say, I think that like to slightly change or use different word and I would find, I, I get what you're saying, but the kind of dance music, it's more like a kind of a, a heart rhythm or a kind of, you know, high cardio, if you want to call it that. Whereas yeah. Hans Zimmer, for some reason, just for me, is more primal. It's more, yeah, <laughs> it's really like kind of like, I just feel like I want to lift weights, run, scream jump up yep. and down. I don't know what about it is. And yep. recently I watched Tenant, which is a Christopher yes. Nolan movie, but that has a different yep. composer. But I thought it was yes. Hans Zimmer, but it's a guy no, called... No, it's Ludwig Goransson. Goransson, yeah. yeah. And that was but very similar to Hans Zimmer style. And I actually thought, oh, it's yeah. interesting. This guy, is this guy Hans Zimmer's son or just copying him or very similar? <laughs> but I had that same feeling where I was like, man, I just want to get up and lift weights and jump around. Like, it's just, it's really interesting like how it's, it sparks that kind of reaction in humans it's it's fascinating yeah and look that's you know that's actually been a trend in film music over the last 20 years that a lot of um people credit uh and in some in some circles blame um Hans Zimmer for what they call the sound of the modern day action blockbuster and you think of films like yeah the Dark Knight trilogy the Bourne films you know the Jason Bourne yeah. films um different composer but similar school of thought where Instead of very obvious melodies, which we are used to from like the 80s and 90s, you know, think of blockbusters like E.T., Star Wars, Jurassic Park, Dance with Wolves, Superman, you know, very memorable orchestral melodies. In this day and age, um, we've sort of forgone that in favour of propulsion, momentum, and a bit more of a sort of turbulent undercurrent in our film scores. Um, that you could argue um, a bit more sitting in the background and are sort of just creating a sort of blank canvas of hypnotic propulsion that lets filmmakers, um, you know, just, just um, it's a bit more ambiguous what they're wanting you to feel um, mm -hmm. apart from, you know, this sort of hyperkinetic tension, which is very pervasive in, in, in modern day films. It's less, it's less prescriptive, shall we say, 
than a very beautiful, you know, heroic John Williams melody, for example. So before we get on to some more kind of individual performance stuff around travel, I, I just have a, a one question that probably always intrigues me. If you're a composer and you're writing a score for a movie, such as like the Hans Zimmer one with the Batman one, do you sit down with the director, Christopher Nolan, and say, like, what are you trying to achieve here? Do you wait for the first cut to be done? Are you on set while it's getting filmed? Like, how do you, how do you kind of take the raw footage, the director's intent, the story, like paying homage, like let's say to the Batman stuff that was, you know, been yep. around for a long time coming from comics. How, how do you strike a balance or do you write that completely independent and then come back with a version once the first call has been done with the director and see if that matches and you could be potentially completely off or how does that work? <laughs> it is actually everything that you said and all those scenarios are very valid and sometimes it's a combination of all of them. So okay. take someone like Christopher Nolan and Hans Zimmer, their relationship is very close and on many of their films, Christopher Nolan will um, get Hans Zimmer to write a whole heap of music before he even um, sees the film. Mm-hmm. It'll just be like, um, here's an idea, here's a concept. I'm not going to tell you anymore. I'm not going to let you read the script. Just here's an idea. Go off and write something. Um, and then, you know, that's a starting point for conversations. Then he might read a script and have some more ideas based on reading a script. And then finally, he'll watch the film. And, you know, at the end of the day, the nuts and bolts of scoring a film come down to what they call a spotting session where you and the director will watch the film and decide where music is needed. Um, but that's a very kind of specific, um, you know, way of composing. Um, there's also, yeah, like I said, the overview way of, of just sort of writing generalised ideas about a film um, away from the picture and then coming back to it and actually filling in the gaps and actually making it fit the actual um, timings of certain scenes. So there's no right way. Um, composers through history have done it in many different ways. Um, I worked with um, Nick Cave and Warren Ellis recently, who've you know gone from their kind of uber um, you know cult status as, as these great band members, um, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, and you know Warren often his right hand man. There, they've moved into film scoring recently, and believe it or not, most of their film scores are written uh, without seeing the film. It's just based on a story or a conversation with the director. They'll just go into a studio and jam on some ideas, um, you know, based. It's sort of like a kind of a complementary art form. <laughs> you know, someone over here is making a film and then I'm going to go over here and write some music based on what I think this film might end like. Mm-hmm. And that's a very valid way. It's not the, necessarily the only way, but it's a perfectly valid way of, of writing music um, because there is no right and wrong. And, uh the opposite end of the example, John Williams will very carefully go through a film scene by scene and make very careful timings about where the the first note will come in and when where the last note will stop in any given scene. Um, so, yeah, the answer is anything goes in this day and age. So a bit like what we talk about in this podcast, Nicholas, or what The Economist says, it depends. <laughs> it depends. <laughs> it depends. <laughs> I don't I don't say that at home, though. I just say yes, dear, and yeah. I go off and I do what I'm told. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, look, I'm, I'm writing a film score at the moment, and I've, um, you know, I've written about 20 minutes worth of music already, and I haven't seen any of the film. I've just read a script and talked to the director, you know, and that's, that's a way of um, the director will actually use it on set 
as he's filming actors, he'll play some of the music just to get them in the zone, get them in a particular mood. Um, Because like you said, different types of music can really have an effect on your emotional state. And I think as actors, um, it's very difficult to just bring out these emotions from a cold start. So having some music to inspire them um, is a wonderful way to go about it. So can you tell us what the movie is? Uh, no, I can't yet. It's it's still a, a secret, <laughs> as these things are. But it is it is set in Melbourne. It's a local it's a local film, and it's um it's set in the nineties. So it's a bit of a, a throwback, but it's very it's very fun, very clever. Right. So no and, no um, coronavirus or lockdowns. That'll be a relief to most people. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> so Nicholas, let's get into some of the crooks about how you actually kind of you know manage your performance i suppose so to speak as a conductor yeah. because you're currently in melbourne yes i am but you're normally based in new york is that correct yeah i've been based in new york since 2014 yeah. and i was out in australia last year about this time yeah sort of february march uh, on tour with ben folds the, the american pianist and singer and yeah coronavirus hit so i just sort of stayed i've got some family here and um, have been here ever since but normally i'd be traveling at least um once or twice a month and usually changing countries every four weeks <laughs> yeah um, so it's quite a quite a toll on the body so if you're based out of new york and you're like you say i've done these shows in finland and you know all over the world how how many days would you get into a city? So let's say you go from New York to Helsinki, right? And you're traveling in an easterly direction, probably going up, it's probably like six or seven hours time difference. How, how yep. many days beforehand, if the if the concert's on Saturday night, what, what does your week look like before the concert on a Saturday night? So usually I'll have um, two to three rehearsals. So we might have two rehearsals on Friday, one on Saturday morning. Yeah. Um, and it's often very likely I'll arrive on Thursday, so only a day ahead. If I'm lucky, maybe a day before to, to acclimatize uh, my body. Um, but look, it always depends on you know where I've been, where I'm going, and how tight the connections are. But it's usually not more than a day or two. It's certainly never a whole week. Um, so I am, you know, I've got my systems and patterns of sleeping pretty pretty good with with jet lag. Uh, these days i'm pretty meticulous about um even a couple of days leading up to my travel i'll start trying to change my bedtimes and wake times yeah so they're at least a little closer to my time zone that i'm heading to um, i mean i don't know how much science there is on this stuff but someone told me that for every hour you change time zones like you know time zone difference is like a day of extra recovery you need i'm not sure if that's true uh, well, Nicholas, you are you are <laughs> you are in luck because my PhD is in what we call sleep science chronobiology. This area, just oh, before wow, okay. just, bef- just before Christmas, I published a paper in the world's top sports journal with a bunch of other people, which was on travel fatigue, travel fatigue, yep. and jet lag interventions in athletes. We also have a consensus paper going in, and this year I am working with a Formula One team as their travel and jet lag advisor. So. Maybe we can wow. flip it around and you can ask me all the questions. But in, <laughs> in, in general, um, yes, when you travel in an easterly direction, so New York to Helsinki, for example, using that again, yep. if you travel in the easterly direction for every one hour time zone you cross, it uh, takes you approximately a day to synchronize. For every yep. time zone you travel in a westerly direction will take you about a half a day. So it's always easier to adapt going west than it is going east lots of people think this is uh, lots of people think oh this is you know i'm i'm you know i've come back from london to perth and 
you know, it's after my holiday, so I'm tired. It's like, no, it's actually harder to adapt. Lots of Australians say about this when they go to Europe, it's always easy because they're on holidays. And then when they come back, it's worse. It's actually got to do yeah. with this crossing of different time zones. Um, well, look, my biggest yeah. my biggest trip is usually um, Australia to New York. And but that that makes sense. I'm always much more knackered and, and tired heading back to New York than I am coming back to Australia. Um, I'm often surprised when I land in Australia, which is generally pretty early in the morning, about six or seven yeah. o'clock is when the flights land. That, That's right, John. I, I'm sort of surprised that I can usually stay up all day. Um, <laughs> whereas in New York, I'm just conked out for days. Yeah. Um, arriving there so that's interesting there you go <laughs> yeah so there is there is there is, uh, there is science behind that however there is lots of things you can do to advance that like you said you can start sleeping you know as close as you can before you leave and yes. you, you can do things like which i'm interested here um is like how what do you do for caffeine and alcohol during that week um look i drink coffee um yeah. usually twice a day i'm not a big drinker and i have the more I fly, the less I'm, or the more I'm realizing that drinking on the plane is like the worst thing that, exactly. that I can do. Yeah. Um, I used to think, oh, look, I'll, you know, um, got nothing to do. I'll have a couple of wines or whatever. Um, you know, maybe it might help me sleep, but in general, it makes me feel worse. Um, mm. So I'm, and I won't, I generally won't have coffee on a plane um, as well. I don't change any intake of coffee leading up to my trips and maybe that's something i've never thought about but definitely the alcohol one is something i i really try to avoid when i'm when i'm flying yeah i think your caffeine um, consumption isn't very high anyway so you're probably all right but the alcohol is where people get the biggest um bang for their buck in terms of of um of reduction or elimination because yeah and i find actually the more people travel the less alcohol to start consuming. A lot of the frequent flyers just go, you know what, I just couldn't be bothered with it. But people who intermittently travel will go, oh, I'll have one or two at the airport and then I'll have one or two on the plane because yeah. you know, I don't fly that often, but you're right. You get off the other end and you will feel Yeah, like No, when that. I'm like in an airport lounge, I'm usually um, downing bottles of water yeah. rather than <laughs> glasses of champagne. I know it's free and it looks, it looks very exciting. Oh, free yeah. champagne and wine, but... Like after the first few times you do it, it's not that exciting, and um, I'd much more, much rather get the hydration up. And you look, you know, I find, um, you know, sitting is very bad for the body. That the more liquid I consume, um, you know, water, the more I'll need to go to the toilet, and that's my forced leg stretch, if you like. Um, I probably go to the toilet on the plane far more than I probably should, um, just because I'm I'm trying to drink so much water. Uh, but it really, it really makes me feel better uh, i really can't stress that enough yeah and that's that's one of the things that we found as well looking at the evidence as well and this systematic review before christmas is like using you know fruit juices and water to keep hydrated it's very good because yep. we dehydrate more when we're on a plane and when we're traveling and lots of time sitting so we promote people getting up and moving around do you wear any yeah. sort of com any sort of uh, medical socks nicholas or any sort of compression garments while you're traveling no that's something i've never tried um and I'd be very fascinated to know if it helps. <laughs> yeah, so uh, like I'm maybe a bit suspicious about that, but well, you I, may be the expert. Yeah, well, I think the evidence shows that, like, if you put on something like you know a pair of skins that's like a um, yep. long sleeve, long pants. I have a or, pair of them. Well, they're 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 the, they're the thing they're the thing you shouldn't wear, and people actually really? wear. Oh, yeah, okay. they're, the, they're the things that people wear and shouldn't. What you should really wow. only, only wear is like medical grade socks that you can buy in a chemist that go over yep. the entire foot. 
and go over the calf and up to the knee. So people wearing skins and, you know, any of these sort of recovery sports stuff, don't wear those, but socks yep. up to the knee. Uh, compression stuff. is that because really the um you know like the buttocks and the thighs and stuff are they less should they be kind of kept freer for blood flow versus the calves like what's the secret about the feet and the calves that need to be compressed well sort of when you have the, the long sleeve uh skins top on or the, or the pants they actually pr- they actually create an occlusion because at the bottom of the bottom of them they're actually restricting the blood flow to your feet Ah. so they don't go over your entire foot whereas the medical grade socks does but allows blood flow and promotes blood flow so that's yeah the, that's the evidence so far is that that's the best thing to wear um and i've yes. seen guys getting onto planes and wearing like you know full full skins outfits you know really. <laughs> I, used to, I used to travel a lot and i used to travel business yeah. for work and um you'd see these guys getting on that strip off and have these full like skins things on and it was it's the worst thing you can actually do so so yeah, yeah. Well, that's interesting. Now, look, yeah, I usually wear um, very loose-fitting clothing, um, uh, but I've never really thought about the the whole sock and calf thing. But I'll I'll investigate that, especially if I'm conducting and then going to be on my feet. Yeah, um, that's probably a good thing. I mean, look, to be honest, my my biggest issue as a conductor are back and shoulders. They're the things that get the sorest. Um, and mm. you know, lower back, like that that the muscle I wish my body didn't have is the um, <laughs> The QL, <laughs> yes, yes, the quorum lombata, whatever it's called, that is the bane of my existence. Uh, I've, I'm not sure what I need to do, but it's just the thing that will flare up sooner than anything else and cause me the most strife, whether it's conducting or flying. Um, and whenever I have, you know, physical therapy, it's usually the one thing that I've had people told me it it feels like a concrete slab. It's just a hard, angry muscle that that is, you know, holding me back. So. Um, I'm not sure whether I should be wearing some kind of back brace or something, or it's just uh, something I just need to kind of stretch and exercise on the other end. I'm, I'm really not sure. Do you, do you lean to one side, Nicholas, when you conduct or when you compose or when you're working at home? Do you tend to go to one side? Look, I, I conduct with my right hand, so yeah. that definitely gets more work than the left. And I've been told that my right QL is is sort of in worse shape um when i'm sitting i don't think so i think it's pretty even but uh yeah it's def- definitely the right hand side because of my right-handed conducting <laughs> mm. so um for the people on the, that listen to this podcast regular will be you know sick to death or bored senseless listen to me talk about back issues so i had my, <laughs> I had my spine fused last year um wow from years of of damage but anyway i think another one of the symptoms that i had I'm not saying this is you, was actually I had QL issues on my right-hand side as well. Um, yep. So one of the things that really helped me with my QL, and it might be something to try, is uh, three to four times a week of yoga. Yoga, wow. Uh, okay. And I found it was really good when I was traveling yep. a lot because you can you know, get all these apps. There's heaps of free stuff on YouTube. You can do it in your hotel room. You don't even need to bring yeah. exercise gear. You can do it in your underwear or naked, as some people have told me. Uh, you can do it <laughs> however you want, you know. So it's really, yeah. it's portable. It's easy. And I've had massive improvements in my uh, QL uh, yeah. from, from doing yoga and just more stretching as well. So I think that might be, you know, it may or may not help. And what are your thoughts on that versus, say, Pilates? Because because I've done both yoga and Pilates in New York, a small amount, but yeah. they're both things that I'd, I'd never done before. And I thought 
that that's sort of the, it's a very popular thing in New York. Every second street has a yoga or Pilates studio. Yeah, so yeah. I thought I'd try them out. Um, I found Pilates easier than yoga, but that's probably because I'm quite stiff and not that flexible. Yeah. Is there a, um, are they complimentary? What's your opinion there? Because I'd be very curious. So I think I think they're definitely complementary and they're and they're both beneficial. I think with anything you've got to have a long term approach to it to get the benefits out of it. So, you know, I I do a lot. Of, I used to do a lot of long distance running. I'm back doing that again. When I'm talking about long distance, yep. I'm talking about like hundred k's plus in races. Um, I swam to Rottnest Island before Christmas, so I like oh, that, wow. I like that long distance endurance stuff where I'm going for like seven to thirty hours. Um, yeah, you know, ran in the Colorado Colorado Rockies and and stuff like that for you know, for for over a day continuous. Wow. So I like that sort of thing, but I also do a lot of martial arts and I'm ex-military, so I've got lots of issues. So for me, I have <laughs> to be sustained at something for a long period of time before I get the benefit from it. So I think you need yeah. to be doing it for like you know at least two to three times a week, uh, for yep. at least six months continuous. And that's why I started going to more online stuff because I wasn't able to constantly go to a yoga studio where i got massive benefits and it's great because it kind of holds you accountable but i think having stuff that's portable in this day and age and with the coronavirus i just do most of my stuff now at home and, uh, and yeah I, I find that that really helps um but in conjunction as well i think anything where you're strengthening your body i i would and that's why i asked you earlier on about the physicality of being a conductor because i think the other thing you might want to think about is actually doing some stretching beforehand um, yes, you know, and yeah, a I'm, a, more, I'm a terrible stretcher. Yeah, I'm just <laughs> and getting I your body a little, of... a little bit more loose and using <laughs> some more movement. And the other thing might be even using um, some breathing techniques to, yes, you know, because some people have a tight diaphragm that leads into tight QL. Yeah, so it's kind of looking at it more holistically, and um, that that's that's what some people are doing to actually help them get ready. You know, whether it be for a, a, a physical event or something like what you're doing. I've even seen people do it before meetings. Um, an actual yeah. fact that in industrial settings, a lot of people doing occupational work um, and yeah. you know, working in mining or maintenance are actually doing stretching and um, movement based activities at the at the start of the morning as part of their daily start meeting. So, you know, it's it's definitely something that can help. It definitely won't do you any harm. No. And look, I do a lot of strength training and I'm a serial non stretcher. I usually just. Um, I've got a little home sort of gym, you know, with with um, you know, bench press and, and a little weight rack and stuff, and I usually just go straight into it, um, which is yeah. probably not the best thing. Um, and then maybe I think it's the same with performing. I'm I'm a little, um, uh, I'm not sure if impatient is the word, or I'm I'm very sort of of the moment. You know, I just want to go. I'm a very spontaneous person. I think it's probably yeah. what I'm trying to say. And I I'm very quick on my feet and reactionary in terms of. Um, you know, if I'm putting a, a high pressure situation, I'll just start going. Um, but I think a bit of preparation probably for my body certainly would not go astray in just sort of you know, having a bit of a calm before the storm, so to speak, rather yeah. than ripping straight into a, a, a weight session, doing some stretching or a little, little warm up, and definitely the same with my conducting. Um, that's 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 probably why I have QL issues. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think like you know. You know, you're probably similar to me. Like you're, you know, you're. Do you mind me asking how old you are, Nicholas? I'm thirty. Oh, I just turned thirty-nine. Go just on. turned thirty-nine. Uh, yeah, you're the first person I've told. I'm thirty-nine. Oh, <laughs> uh, so I'm a few years older than you, uh, but um, not much though. But um, you know, I think like as you get older, there's more of an importance on this. And I was actually on a podcast yesterday, the Green Reapers, with a guy called Chris White. Um, 
they've got a podcast um, more jovial than our one. But Chris, so was it on. doesn't sound it doesn't sound more jovial. <laughs> Gr- Grin Reapers are a bunch of jokers. Um, but um, oh, Grin Gr- Reapers, okay. Grin, no, yeah, not Grim. Uh, Chris was on Ninja Warrior last year for us in Australia. Oh, wow. So, you know, we were just talking about this thing that basically, as you start getting older, you know, you start feeling more 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 focus has to be on recovery stretching keeping yourself you know kind of loose and supple and you're yeah. more prone to injuries you get tight it gets kind of harder um and I, I don't know about you but we when i was younger like you saw a guy in their 40s doing kind of what i'm doing you were like you never saw them and it was sort of once you hit your 40s like people were like old men whereas now yeah lots, lots of people are really active in their 40s and 50s and, and sort of with that yeah. you need to be a bit more balanced i think with um with a bit more um you know, yoga. Look, totally. And look, you know, there's there's been a huge surge in just the fitness movement in, in, on the whole. I think people are far more aware of, um, you know, being active. You know, look on social media. Every second person is a fitness influencer. I'm not <laughs> saying they have great advice, but at least, um, you know, there's uh, – at least we're talking about the, these things. And it, even on the flip side, things like meditation and mindfulness, Yeah, you know, um, that that is a huge – huge thing and it's actually something my wife has got me a little bit into i'm still not very into it um but i certainly know that when i do try it god it makes a difference and i keep saying why don't i why don't i just take 20 minutes every morning and sit quietly with my thoughts instead of diving into the news or a a music project or whatever um i think it's you know the information overload that we live in is kind of um making us sedentary and at the same time we are witnessing you know we're sitting on our on our asses on our couches reading about all these fit people on instagram yeah, yeah. sort of um quite <laughs> ironic know, yeah it's quite ironic yeah um, yeah so less reading and more action <laughs> so if anybody's interested in meditation i've got two episodes on this podcast you can go back and listen to lama soridas who is an american uh lama who um studied with the dalai lama and um, he's on there he was one of the wow. famous guys that went over in the seventies. One of the Das brothers, so Ramdas, who died recently, he was friends of his. Oh yes. Um. So he it was Ramdas, Lama Sori Das, and Krishna Das. So he was on my podcast like, a couple of years ago. So you can go back and listen to that episode. But also we had a, a friend of mine, Buddha Rakata, who's a Theravadan Buddhist monk who was here in Perth, but is now in Sri Lanka. He's got a background in yep. chemist chemistry. So he's on talking about meditation, and I've been on a few silent retreats myself. So. Um, but like you, Nicholas, I'm kind of laughing here because I'm the same. I'm like 110% go the whole time. I find it difficult to meditate and I find it difficult to stretch and relax. I'm just constantly, you know, 100%, uh, if not more every yeah. day. So I, I empathize. I'm, I jump out of bed, like <laughs> looking at the news, drinking coffee, trying to shower at the one time and let, <laughs> let's go, you know. So um, it yeah. can be difficult, but there is benefit in, in sort of taking that time out. I'd also be interested in to have your thoughts on because you know the other side of my career is the opposite of conducting, where it's a very sedentary lifestyle of composing and arranging, you know, at a at a music desk. Yes. Um, you know, with long periods of sitting and crouched over a keyboard or or writing music. Um, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on the whole sort of standing desk revolution and whether there are any benefits to that or is it sort of a bit of a overhyped thing uh because i'm 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 looking at potentially investing in in one of those standing desks uh for home and wondering yeah. if it's something that would i'd never use or would annoy me or would be a fantastic and life-changing thing it's interesting you asked that question because as you were talking earlier on i was thinking about being a, the difference between a conductor and a composer 
when you're composing, I presume you're more kind of introverted and you're, you know, looking at stuff on your own. And when you're yeah. conducting, you're more extrovert. And I'm, I'm like that to a certain degree in terms of my scientific research. I'll sit here, analyze data, write stuff and eat quiet. But yeah. then I can go out and then speak to, you know, X amount of people or go out and work with athletes and you have to be very extroverted influencing. So you're kind of changing. So I think yeah. that's, that's interesting that you kind of have to go in now those zones and um, which also influences my music choice <laughs> when I'm at home. <laughs> uh, funny enough, actually, when I'm writing scientific papers, do you know who I listen to? Metallica. Oh, really? It's really weird. Oh, I don't know what it wow. is, but heavy, very weird. heavy, it's very, maybe there's something, maybe there's a few neurons and a fire in there. But Metallica seems to help me write scientifically. Wow, I am I am a weirdo. Anyway, um, so the thing <laughs> you need the, help. <laughs> I do need help. Yeah. <laughs> um, the thing with the stand-in desk is I can only I don't know what the research says. As in, I haven't looked at it. For me, I got a standing desk a few years ago and actually made me worse. It actually wow. it actually exacerbated my QL issue. That's why I asked yeah. you the question because I was leaning to one side at the desk. Yeah. So for me, um, that was a problem. So now what I tried to do is I got a better chair. I got a better level desk. Um, I have multiple screens as opposed to just working off a laptop. I've got a yep. keyboard. I've got a mouse ergonomically set up better. But also I take breaks throughout the day. And I also yep. change the type of activity I do, do throughout the day. So where I would stay at a computer all day for 10 hours sometimes and then go out and run for an hour, then come back. <laughs> like I could may maybe get up in the morning, have coffee, five hours at a desk, then go, oh, I need to get out of here, go out and run for an yeah. hour, hour or two, come back, shower, not stretch, and then sit at the desk for the rest of the day. Yeah. And then go back there after dinner doing stuff. And, I, you know, it's sort of high, high bouts of bouts of high activity and then yeah. bouts of zero activity. So I think it's trying to yeah. look and see if you can level out through the day by the using, day, a, time, yeah, using sure. a timer, stretch. Yeah. You know, and if you're like me working, you know, in, in your own kind of bubble, you can, you know, wear loose fit and clothing you can stretch you can take a break you can walk outside you can you know do whatever you want kind of throughout the day so you do have a lot of control i would i would suggest over compared to somebody in an office block so i would i would look yes. at doing more of that kind of movement and changing of position throughout the day as opposed to a bit like what you're doing standing. Plane, as opposed to standing um, yeah. or looking for a solution there and then the other thing is there's these very desks you can get to go on top of the desk and obviously they're beneficial and lots of companies have them but I know, and this is only from someone who's told me they had a very desk and then they got rid of it. And then they got more of a mechanical desk that the whole desk goes up and down. And then yeah. once they got that and it was like two or three grand, they were like completely wow. different. Wow. So I think it just, it's going to depend on a few factors, but I'd, I'd probably urge you yeah. to make some changes first yourself if you can. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm, I'm standing now as we speak and I, you know, I noticed that especially when I'm conducting, um, I often sit into my hips and, uh, you know, almost get a bit of a sway back. And so I'm always, I'm always um, thinking about my posture, um, that a lot of it, and I think my, my often poor posture and sitting into the hips comes from that I do sit too much and my hamstrings get super tight. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's, Again, where stretching probably would would help all form all walks of my life, from just standing to to even even walking, um, squatting. You know, I, I find um, getting deep squats with correct form is is often difficult because I have such tight hamstrings. 
um, and I think you know can can prevent you know gaining gaining weight and and going up through the through the weight levels um, because I'm sort of limited by my movement and so I can only kind of lift so much because of that very restriction and I'm and I'm sure that something like stretching would would help that um, but I, I do worry that if I got like a standing desk you know back to this subject that I'd just sit into my hips and make it worse my posture all day <laughs> yeah yeah um, so maybe, maybe you're getting a better a better chair and and thinking about those things and just like you said more regular breaks and stretches yeah um, would would be beneficial yeah for sure and i think just taking a more holistic approach like we we're saying about stretching that's obviously going to help you looking at your ergonomic setup and just trying to get more general movement into the day as opposed to yeah. you know highly sedentary periods which is obviously hard because it sounds like you get in a groove and you don't want to move yeah. and then it's yep. it's hard to get up and move around so yep uh something i did find helped and i i can't remember where i got this tip from but it basically every morning i get up and i hang from a like a, a chin-up bar that kind of sits in my door frame architrave yeah um and just hang for about you know 60 seconds um and i find it's just I don't know, maybe my body compresses overnight, but it's just just a very simple act of hanging from these bars with my natural body weight just helps to kind of, yeah, it's almost like a sort of forced elongation and, and stretch in the morning. Um, that, that's something I find very beneficial. Yes, and I there's actually a, there's been a book on that um, and a lot of people advocate that in terms of, you know, release through your upper back around your traps and your shoulders to help release that Um because a lot of neck and shoulder issues come from that kind of compression. And so one of the the best things to do is actually hang from a bar or hang from rings. Um, yeah. That was one of the things I was doing and got some benefit from it. Um, but then I figured out that my spine was collapsing from an MRI. So no matter how many times I hung upside down or did anything or it wasn't <laughs> going to help. But I, I definitely did get a lot of relief uh, from from hanging. And lots of people do talk about, you know, hanging um the hand yeah. from, a, from a bar or so on yeah yeah so that would be that would be helpful uh nick coming back to um when you when you travel and you land in a place you obviously you you pair up or team up with local orchestras such as for example you came here to perth and you worked with the, with the west australian symphony orchestra in some cases these guys um um and I use guys collectively guys and girls everybody <laughs> every everybody inclusive sorry um they, they may not know you or they may not know your temperament or they may have worked with you know an asshole conductor previously and then you rock up and they don't <laughs> know you how do you build that rapport and provide leadership in such a short space of time what what sort of things do you do to do that because i, I would imagine that's quite difficult in some cases look that's to be honest it's it's the make or break moment um before i'm even getting into the bones of the music I really feel that most orchestras have sort of sussed you out in the first five minutes. Um, so it's something I we think about almost as much as the rest of the rehearsal. Um, look, you know, I'm lucky in Australia that I've worked with many of the symphony orchestras a lot, and so I know I know them. Um, but especially overseas, um, and especially overseas with language barriers, uh, you've got to be even more careful and think about it. And I found the best solution is to absolutely be myself, um, show show a genuine identity that is Nicholas Buck. And for me, that's that's a much more relaxed, friendly, jokey, laughy approach um, that I know will, you know, it's like any kind of 
um, speech you'd give it in, in, a, in, a, in a room full of people where it's a wedding or a conference or, or whatever. You know, a couple of funny jokes, lightheartedness, easygoing kind of disposition really helps to break the ice. Um, and I guess what I'm saying is I'd back that up with once we get into the music, I'm all, I'm all business. And I can show that with my gestures, with my knowledge of the music. That's what lets them know, okay, look, this guy seems pretty fun, relaxed, easygoing, but he knows he knows what he's doing. And I'm sure there'd be many examples where you'd get someone who is kind of joking, relaxed, and then that that is all they are. And the rehearsal's a bit of a shambles and it's a bit kind of, you know, there's no time management of getting through the material and whatnot. So I find balancing those two items is really good um, and has worked very well in my favour. Um, but it's certainly something that I am cognizant of and even sometimes plan <laughs> um, just, you know, where where are we? What's something I can use to break the ice? Has there been some kind of event in the orchestra's history in the last week? Was, was there a great review they had from some other concert? I'll try and find that out. Just, you know, give some little, little anecdote or whatever. Um, you know, at the end of the day, these are people and you're working with them. So it's that combination of being a people person as well as an army general yeah. <laughs> and striking that that balance. Do you, do you find then, Nick, that like you said about your age, you know, like you're not you're not that old. So do you find that people look no. at you with a bit of trepidation and go, oh, this guy's just a young guy. What does he know? Like, does, does, totally. Does, does the experience and the age kind of matter? Um, look, I think it can if you, if you let it get to you. But um, I'm... Like I said, I just I'm aware that people will probably make that judgment before I even open my mouth. You know, when I walk in the room, especially at a new orchestra, you can see musicians going, "Oh, is that the conductor?" You, you know, and I'm sure they're making judgments already. You know, what's his accent like? You know, God, he's got a funny walk, or oh, he's cute, or you know, um, God, he, as if he'd know anything. He looks too young. <laughs> there could yeah. be all these things going through their head. So that's why, you know, the first couple of minutes, I'll try and let them know, you know, who I am, you know, without saying, hi, I'm Nick, you know, I was born here. Just just be my usual self, which is a very friendly people person orientated kind of kind of style. And then let my my actual musicality be the the final, you know, judgment maker for them. Because at the end of the day, once once I'm waving my arms and they're playing and they're getting everything I need from you know, for, for, from them and vice versa, I think they'll make that that judgment irrespective of my age. Yeah, I think that's interesting because uh, you know, running the risk of kissing your ass here again. Um, you know, you are a you are a you are a very likable guy, and from seeing you twice sitting up the back looking down, you know, my wife and I have discussed if there was a different conductor, it wouldn't work. And so that energy comes across into the audience. You can see it then coming across into the orchestra themselves and um, yeah. how, you, how you interact with them as well. Um, so it's kind of, it is really interesting that you, you say you are just being yourself because that kind of resonates not just to the orchestra, but to the crowd as well. Um, yeah. So well, that's, well, that's great to know because I mean, yeah. I think, yeah, what, what that little pre-show rev up and speech that I usually do at concerts, um, is kind of a similar thing I do to the orchestra, just, just be about different things, but the manner, the style, I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of what I mean about showing just a little glimpse of my personality, um, enough to, to make people at ease. And then once the show or the rehearsal is underway, you know, um, back it up with some actual, you know, 
serious musical cred and 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 show you know what you're doing. And I think you're that's a that's a pretty good recipe for for any really field that involves public speaking and leadership. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, we look at our politicians, and I think a lot of them could do with a um, <laughs> just a bit of a bit of a sense of humour. Like it, it all seems a bit scripted. And you know, I mean, there's a reason we use the expression. Oh, it's it's you know, he's talking like a politician. It's because um, it's a very kind of uh, it's not, politicians don't speak in a friendly way, you know. And I, I don't know why they don't. I don't know why they just don't yeah. use a bit of natural show show the person who you are, you know, warm 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 up the crowd with a bit of natural um, speech and vocabulary, and then and then you can back it up with your you know with your credentials and your policies and whatever it is um, but it feels like they're from the get-go playing this hard-nosed political politician-y speak um, that isn't very warming oh, I, um, I agree with you and that's one of the reasons why i didn't go into science row as a full-time gig because you know basically it's the same in academia as well or if you present at a conference you know it's it's very hard to to make a joke and i didn't go back to do my phd till i was like 37 and <laughs> I had nearly 20 years in military and mining done at that stage. And, you know, I'd make a joke and at a conference or something and, you know, people would pull you up about making a joke and I'm just like, Oh, for fuck's sake. Like, like we got to make this stuff interesting and engaging. This is what science needs, not only amongst ourselves, but to the general population. And that's one of the reasons why I started this podcast. One is to talk to interesting people. One is to cross, then also to cross uh, over multiple domains, but to make these things interesting because lots of science and lots of information is not coming out in a decent format to people. And so I'm trying to bridge that no. gap and, and make, make things totally. interesting. You know, there might be people listening to this that go, wow, I'm going to go and watch that Harry Potter thing or go to a local concert or maybe I'll, I'll see if my kids want to play the violin and maybe we can inspire somebody to go and, you know, <laughs> think think differently about, about music, you know, because yeah. it can have such much benefits in our life. And like you said earlier on, it does touch us in numerous different ways. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, and to your point there, I feel that, you know, science and and the old establishment of classical music uh, can be a bit similar in that um, you've got to make them appealing because once once people can actually get past the sort of the formalities of you know a rigorous scientific paper or or presentation or a rigorous you know classical music concert with its you know silence and 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 sort of formalities there. There is joy and fun and interest and 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 stuff that people want to engage with in there. Um, it probably just needs the, an icebreaker of such because I mean I'm sure we've all seen you know science papers published about such and such like general population aren't going to read them yeah, they're, exactly, they're not presented yeah. in a way that is is enticing and the same with a lot of classical music um, you know if it's not something you're genuinely interested and fascinated in it needs to be presented in a way that that does break that barrier so yeah. and, and hopefully you know what you're doing and um, you know what we're doing with with music is a way to to be that icebreaker, so that then they can dive in, and there's room to go the serious, full full classical experience or full scientific yes um, yeah. experience. You know that it's we just need to have the gateway drug, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. Nicholas, um, also as well, a question is like after you do a concert, how do you wind down and kind of you know relax yourself and. <laughs> and get to sleep or is it all kind of you know drug sex and rock and roll afterwards as well do you have an after oh, party no. or what happens 
No, look, uh, for me, it's, it's just time. Like a, a certain amount of time needs to elapse before the adrenaline just sort of trickles out of my limbs somewhere. Um, I'm generally pretty hyped for at least a good hour after a show. Um, you know, I'm not a big drinker. Like I said, might be a, a, a cheeky cocktail or glass of wine with some of the orchestral members at the nearest watering hole, depending on the on the place. Um, but, yeah, I, I just, um, you know, obviously rehydrate and it's just time. I can't go straight from the concert to my hotel room and jump straight into bed. Uh, I'm too wide. So I just need to let the, the natural endorphins or bits of adrenaline, whatever they are, just um, just settle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's so exactly a long bath saying. helps, or a hot shower. Um, also, actually, sometimes a cold shower. I've been investigating recent times uh, are doing wonders for me. <laughs> I think this is the exact same way we find in elite athletes as well. It takes two to three hours before they can wind down after a game and, and initiate sleep. So. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very it's very interesting yeah and so my Nicholas, body is physically exhausted i am i am tired but just it's just a matter of yeah letting it letting the mental and emotional kind of height come down to a, a more stable area nicholas i have one final question for you and this is a, a self-serving question we we had a, a five-day lockdown here recently in western australia um and i picked up a, a little instrument um called a ukulele and uh, <laughs> I'm going to learn the ukulele. Of course now you I, did. <laughs> now, I try, now I did try. I have to say I did try actually a couple of years ago, partly inspired by watching um, you guys at the at the orchestra about learning a musical instrument because I never learned one as a kid. But obviously due to my neck issues, I had a lot of issues with my left hand and I was my left arm was atrophying and I couldn't actually hold the ukulele because the nerve pain was too bad. Um, wow. So anyway picked up the ukulele about a month ago was like wow got no more pain surgeries all worked it's great a couple of weeks ago picked it up and i've been learning a few songs um using youtube and a few other things so <laughs> creek by radiohead don't worry oh, nice. uh three little birds by bob marley uh, Fle <laughs> fleetwood mac dreams you know all all the old stuff yeah. so my question to you is uh What's your advice to an adult learner such as myself in their early 40s trying to learn a musical instrument? Should they just keep playing around and make a fun and use YouTube or should you go to a proper school or should I learn how to make music or should I dedicate my life to trying to be a composer and conductor like you, Nicholas? What should I do? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, it might. I think at the end of the day, the, the best musicians, uh, there's something deep down in their genes that 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 makes them them great and make them tick. I know so uh, so myself, I have to give up already. <laughs> um, I think that's what I'm leading to. Yes, um, it'll that's be my a fun little hobby. But I think if you if you haven't got it by now, it's certainly not not saying you can't enjoy it. Um, but I don't know. I just uh, feel that it's it's something you're either born born to do um or nurtured from a young age um i think it'll only ever be a, a side interest for your ian <laughs> um and look you know i know plenty of people who take up singing in choirs or or little bands you know gigs on the side you know once they're sort of you know an established adult um <laughs> but i i don't know anyone who's a professional musician who like hasn't kind of been that their whole life. Um, I'm sure there's the exceptions to the rule. I'm sure there are. And then probably some great some great ones that, you know, were an accountant for 40 years and then discovered uh, 
they were a great. Oh, who was that lady on um, uh, America's Got Talent or something? Susan Boyle. Susan you know Boyle. I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she was whatever she was for years, and then had a great singing voice. Yeah, there, there's exceptions like that. Look, is she the best musician? I have no idea. Maybe she's just got a great voice. Um, that's that's that can be two different things. <laughs> right. um, but look, plug it away. If it gives you joy, I say absolutely do it. Uh, music is for everyone and of all ages should have different levels of, of, of enjoyment. And as long as it doesn't frustrate you and make you want to smash the ukulele uh, you know, over your standing desk, um, then I say, yeah, keep plugging away. Uh, YouTube videos are, are great. There's so much free information that I'm sure you'll you'll derive some pleasure from it. No, I, I agree. I've got no illusions becoming a, a, a musician, but it's um, it is kind of funny. And I, I actually said that last week. I'm not going to let it frustrate me. If it frustrates me, I pull it down and pick it up again the next day. But what is interesting is that looking at some of the studies, that people who, you know, try a musical instrument later on in their life have less prevalence of dementia and Parkinson's disease. Wow! Particularly with the drums. Really? Yeah, and people I over want, fifty years why. of age, and I think it might be something got to do with the coordination because you're using two feet and two hands. It must be yeah. something got to do with the coordination. My wife said there is no way you're getting a drum kit. She said there is. <laughs> it's not happening. The ukulele is fine. No. You can play around with that. Yeah. You're not getting a drum kit because every time I go and watch an orchestra, I watch the guy at the drums. And when they start beating the drums really, yeah, really heavy, my wife just looks at me and I've got this smile on my face like um, you know, animal out of Muppets. Um, we, went to, we went to watch some Japanese drumming recently here in Perth at Fringe Festival and I yeah. came out of it like and I was just my my chest was resonating so I've got this kind of affinity to the drum uh, but I'm, I'm under strict instructions not to get one so the ukulele would be my fun for now well they do say there's two times of uh, people who play musical instruments there's musicians and then there's drummers <laughs> so um, <laughs> uh, drums are hard like it's it's oh, such a yeah. different skill set to playing anything else i think just the yeah the hands i mean i can't think of another musical instrument that really uses the feet um maybe i mean i guess the piano sort of does because you're pressing the pedals but it's pretty much just two hands so to incorporate my, all that all that kick drum stuff is yeah requires a different skill set my wife summed up the other day she actually said actually it was, it was last night we were watching something and she goes and there was someone playing the drums and she said when you hear a really good drummer it's like there's two to three drummers playing continuously yeah that's yeah. and it's only one person i'm like oh you're right that's actually a good way of summing it up and that's what it did yeah. sound like <laughs> oh nicholas oy, oy, oy. our time is coming to an end i do want you to hang on the line after us because i have a recommendation for you um so um so after the outro please please hold the line as they say so nicholas if, pe if people want to follow your work um they want to see you as an inspiring next hand Zimmer. You might be in the the fourth iteration of the Dark Knight series, um, or Batman <laughs> writing the scores. How can people follow your work? How can people find out where you're going to be playing in post coronavirus times? And um, what's so, the best way to get a hold of you? Yeah, I have a website which is just nicholasbuck, B U C dot com, uh, nicholasbuck.com. And of course, I'm, I'm active on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, and my handle there is Buck Nicholas. So just my surname first, uh, Buck Nicholas. And I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm usually regularly posting things that I'm, I'm up to, whether it's arranging or conducting or composing. And I have an events page on my website. Uh, which is looking a little empty this year. I was going to uh, say, I, I just, we'll... I just, I just clicked on it. I think it's blank. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, look, I have actually quite a few projects coming up. I just, um, it's probably blank from last year. It's, it's a hangover from 2020. So I will be sure to update that um, 
uh, pretty soon before yeah. before this podcast reaches people's ears. Because <laughs> yeah, I've got play, play, plenty coming on at least in Australia this year. Some great pictures up on your website as well. Really great pictures of you in different different um, settings. You know, composing, um, conducting. You know, traveling. It's just it, absolutely fantastic photography on here as well. A really well done website, and um, you can see. Oh, here thank you very well. much. Yeah, it's really nice, and you can see here as well some of the the people that Nicholas has worked with. And a few weeks ago, just prior to this podcast, uh, I actually just shouted out my sitting room to my wife. That's the guy. That's the guy. She's like, relax. <laughs> what are you talking about? We were watching the final of Junior MasterChef. And, oh, yes. <laughs> uh, Nick, you, you were the conductor of the back uh, with, the, with, the, with the mini orchestra, as I call it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, that was, that was good fun. That was uh, one of the highlights of 2020 was uh, <laughs> going into the Channel 10 studios and, uh, and uh, yeah, doing, doing all, the, all the MasterChef scores live. Very, very fun. It was great. All right. So um, you've heard it there, guys. Go over and check out Nicholas' book um, at nicholasbook.com. Lots of information there. Um, stay tuned there for events or follow him on Instagram. Definitely worth a follow. And uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing you again in action with your uh, baton, not your wand. <laughs> Thanks for having me in. It was a pleasure to chat. Great stuff. Thanks, Nick. <laughs>